Good afternoon. Welcome to the uh, jointly sponsored uh, session on the future of older blind programs. The sponsors are the Alliance for Aging and Vision Loss and the Rehabilitation, no, there we go, Rehabilitation Issues Task Force. And uh, I want to welcome you all. Yeah? I, I did say that. Alliance for Aging and, and Vision Loss, right? Oh, okay. You're here. <laughs> so usually we, uh, we go around the room and have everybody introduce themselves, and, but we have so much information to give you. What I propose as an alternative is for... Uh, uh, me to talk about categories of people and, and they, they clap or say yeah or something like that. Is that acceptable for people? Great, thank you. Alright, so first of all, how many of the uh, Rehabilitation Issues Task Force people do we have in the room? Alright, a couple people, great. And how about the AAVL folks? Members and, and board members and, and of, of the AAVL. How many of you are there? All right, great. How many of you have any idea where you are? Yeah. yeah. Does anybody really know what time it is? Uh, so uh, the next question, uh, how many people are um, uh, professionals in the rehabilitation field? There you are. All right. We got a winner here. And how many people are affiliate leaders who are coming to hear about uh, how to advocate at the state level? Oh, good. Good. Very good. Excellent. Uh, any other categories that I missed? Retired? All right. Or just, all right, retired. Yes. SRCs or, or advisory uh, councils. Excellent. Excellent. And I thought when you said retired, I thought you said tired. How many people are tired? <laughs> we have uh, three people. and we, uh, Did I get everybody? Or is there another category? Low, a low vision support group at a senior center. All right. Is there anybody else in that category? Well, how about a nonprofit with support groups? All right. We've got another a nonprofit with support groups. Good. All right. Let me now introduce you to the speakers. Uh, by the way, my name is Doug Powell, and I've been the chair of the Rehabilitation Issues Task Force for what, about five or six years now. Um, and I'll be moderating. Uh, we have three uh, experts, and we actually have a, four, a, a, a surprise guest coming in in about a half hour, 45 minutes. Um, let me, uh, Larry Johnson is going to be coming in and speaking a little bit about the legislation in Texas on the older blind programs and um, you know, what, 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 they've, uh, what they've negotiated, what they've gotten passed and also how they got there. So he's got some great ideas for outreach and, and that kind of thing for state advocacy, and I, I thought that would be wonderful for us to hear. 
But uh, until then, we, have, uh, we also have three people who are going to really give us the uh, nitty-gritty on what, what's happening with the current older blind programs and also where we should be heading and, and some interesting ideas that you might want to take back about how you can uh, uh, be creative about the uh, programming and the funding of uh, older blind programs. Um, I guess I'll start... Uh, I guess I'll start with... Uh, with um, Deb Cook-Lewis, because if I don't do it soon, I'm going to forget her title. She's the Technical Assistance Coordinator uh, in the Department of Technology and Disability Studies at the University of Washington in Seattle. So, that, yeah. So, uh, yes, and a, and a, uh, and a high-powered uh, ACB leader. Um, Next to her is uh, Sherry Res no, Raisler. I know. Sorry. Every time. You know, my uh, uh, voiceover says Rossler. I want to say Wrestler, and it's actually Raisler, so I apologize. Um, uh, Executive Director of the Sacramento Society for the Blind in Sacramento, California. Oh, I think she brought her whole department with her. <laughs> And then uh, Mark Reichert, who's the director of advocacy for the uh, American Feder Foundation. For the American Foundation for the Blind. Um, so, without further ado, let's uh, let's get going. What is the blindness? What uh, the um, Older Blind Program, OIB, Older Independent Blind Program, um, and why was why was it formed, and what is the current status? So I, I'd like uh, AFB uh, under Mark's direction uh, put together a, a one pager, and <laughs> which we're keeping a deep dark secret. Which we're keeping a deep dark secret today. Um, so uh, he, and he can cover that, but uh, uh, and we do have somebody to take some addresses and stuff. Um, so Mark is going to uh, start us out with sort of the, the, uh, the, a summary of the one-pager that is a very good compilation of some st statistics that you would like to have at your disposal when you go back to, to do advocacy at, the, at your level. So Mark, why don't you start and give us an idea of what the program is and uh, how it got there. Great. Thank you very much, Doug. Mark Reichert. Public Policy Director, AFB, pleased to be with you. So uh, let me drop one website uh, URL on you while I'm still thinking about it, and that would be afb.org slash aging. afb.org slash aging. I cannot tell you the hours of focus group conversation we had to come up with that little title. You're supposed to be laughing at that. Come on. Don't be in a post-lunch haze now. Come on. Time for you. So uh, if you visit there, you should find uh, any number of resources connecting you up with the various activities that AFB is involved in. Uh, and that's all I'm going to give you by way of an advertisement. And it, truly, it isn't an ad. Uh, we, uh, American Foundation for the Blind, you know, uh, if we do things well, one of the things that we do, and I'll let you be the judge of that, uh, is that we bring people together and hopefully stimulate conversation, play a sort of a catalytic role in the field, uh, whether it be in research, getting uh, sometimes tough conversations going or perhaps mobilizing us to do uh, sort of the, the bigger picture kinds of things. ACB does that too. 
And quite honestly, uh, there's a lot of stuff that we need to cover, and uh, we need all hands on deck for things. And that's absolutely true in the aging area. That's why AFB has launched this 21st century agenda on aging and vision loss, uh, or the aging agenda. If you want to be part of that, you can uh, email Doug, email me. We're going to, I guess, be talking about the email addresses a little bit later. My email address is mreichert at afb.net, M-R-I-C-H-E-R-T at afb.net. I'd love to hear from you if you're interested. One of the, the things that we do with this aging agenda, essentially, as I say, uh, AFB staff plays sort of a facilitator role. Well, it's not AFB's agenda. It's the field's agenda, and what we are trying to do is to focus our attention on a few areas the first of which, uh, first among equals, as I like to put it, of the four goals of that national aging agenda has to do with funding for services uh, for old blind folk. And not just uh, funding for the old blind program per se, but looking at funding in a hopefully more comprehensive way. And we're going to be talking about how to advocate at the state level as well. In these uh, wild and crazy days in Washington, D.C., if you are not thinking about how to not only work nationally to either survive or persuade the U.S. Congress to do certain things, uh, and not looking at the state uh, arena, then you're missing out, uh, because the state level is absolutely where we've got some amazing, I think, untapped opportunities uh, to do some things, and I know Larry will be talking about that. What is the program? We've got other expert folk on this panel with me who can flesh out the details. I'll simply say, for purposes of my little introductory uh, remarks here, that a you know decades-old program, we haven't been living with an independent living services for older individuals who are blind or an OIB program for you know generations. We're really talking about you know just a few decades, really. And uh, the program uh, was it is very much a federal, state, and private partnership, a f uh, infusion of federal dollars, not nearly enough federal dollars, but an infusion of federal dollars uh, that is given to the states on the basis of population, uh, and then states in turn, typically through their state uh, agencies for the blind or other state so-called designated units or voc rehab agencies, contracting with private agencies for the blind. In certain instances, contracting with independent living centers. Uh, and we may have, if we have time, we can talk about that dynamic if we wish. Uh, but in any case, it very much is a federal, state, and private partnership. Uh, states are expected to pony up a bit of a match. It's sort of a 90-10 uh, percentage there. So clearly, the, the, the feds are carrying a good chunk of what's going on there. Uh, but in any case, uh, for years, uh, the a dollar amount that the Congress was spending, uh, was appropriating, was not a whole heck of a lot. And, and I'm going to brag on AFB, and I can do it without blushing in front of you, because personally, as a, you know, uh, in my professional life, I didn't have anything to do with this uh, victory. But I, I think we all, frankly, owe a debt of gratitude to AFB for its leading the field, all of us, on raising the dollar amount from whatever level it was in the mid-90s, which was pretty pitiful, 1990s, up to at least that threshold level, uh, $13 million at that time nationally, which then triggered some certain things to happen in terms of how f f the, the monies were to be divided to make sure that certainly those so-called minimum allotment states would get at least a certain threshold 
of dollars, but nevertheless uh, to make sure that there was more money available across the country. Well, that $13 million figure has uh, been exceeded tremendously over the course of time, not only because of what AFB did. And when I say what AFB did, I mean, let's be very direct about it. It really was about reaching out to an outside public policy council uh, if they were working for Philip Morris or, you know, a oil and gas industry, we'd call them lobbyists, but because we're working, they were working for us, we call them saints, right? We call them, uh, but they were lobbyists, professional lobbyists, uh, with whom staff, AFB staff, names like Scott Marshall, Alan Dinsmore, Paul Schrader, uh, were involved in, and that's how that, that appropriation got increased over time and put it on a track to where it is today, which is $33.4 million. Now I'm going to stop bragging about AFB because the truth is that that $33.4 million approximately has been static for many, many years. And here's the, the kicker. Uh, Doug mentioned about stats I was going to drop on you. you know, it's, it, we, all of us, including me, uh, are maybe in a little bit of a post-lunch haze. So I don't want to give you tons of stats that are going to make whatever eyes you may have in your head roll up. Uh, but I will say to you that the best numbers that we have, and they aren't great, uh, would seem to suggest uh, that no more than about 2% of those folks who could or should be benefiting from the services of the older OIB program are getting it. So, and so how many is that? Maybe 60,000 human beings across the country? And how much service are they really getting? On average, the dollar amount spent on them is about 548 bucks. Uh, do you think that $548 is going to... Uh, on average, uh, make sure that grandma or grandpa is going to be able to live on his or her own uh, like they used to be able to. Um, I think we all know that the dollar amount is pretty is woefully uh, low. So in any case, uh, I'll wrap up for the moment and say uh, Doug was alluding to a one-pager. We have been working uh, with the National Council of State Agencies for the Blind uh, and other groups, as has ACB, to talk about how we can sort of put all of what I've been saying and what we're going to be talking about more today, you know, down in black and white. Uh, and if uh, not unlike the snafu of the Braille programs for this conference, uh, we did expect to have material uh, to distribute today. And all I will say is uh, we, the Royal We, apologize. Uh, but uh, in any case, if you vis visit afb.org slash aging, that will certainly be at least the beginning of your portal into this world of stuff. And we look forward to working with you. something to that about the goals and, and funding and, you know, the basics? All right. Then let's move on. So the next question I have for the panelists, and let's start with Sherry then, is um, what kinds of services are provided and who provides them? And uh, anything about innovative partnerships? Okay, so uh, Sacramento has its senior project, which was started in 2001, and uh, um, the range of services we provide to the seniors we serve is um, we have a multi-day retreat, so our basic one is an eight-day on-site retreat at our facility in Sacramento. But over the last um, two to three years, we've really seen an uptick in the number of seniors who have secondary disabilities. And that eight-day retreat is just um, a little bit too long and taxing. And so we now have five- and three-day retreats. Um, and those shorter retreats we're starting to take out into some of the other counties um, that we cover. So we are currently funded in 12 counties um, for that. We also do in-home trainings uh, with the seniors. 
And uh, we have a large number of community workshops and training seminars that we do. We have monthly support groups um, in English and Spanish. Uh, we also now are doing quarterly family and caregiver support groups, um, which are also something that we're seeing a lot more interest um, and need for overall. Um, some of the partnerships that we have, a lot of the uh, retirement centers and facilities, um, Escaton, Retirement Housing Foundation, and the like, um, we're starting to partner a lot more with them. And I'd say the change that I've seen is probably five to ten years ago when we first started, um, it was something that we could come in and we could talk about low vision um, as something to maybe fill a calendar slot for a social activity. Today they're wanting us to come in and run those support groups at their um, facilities and also train their employees and staff because of the increasing number of seniors who are all living longer and who, are, who have low vision. So that is something that I think those of us who are providing the service, there's a new need for us out there to train the trainer um, to help those facilities, and that can also be a revenue stream. Um, and then we are also really reaching out to some different organizations. Um, WEAVE is the um, Regional Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault Agency. They wrote us into two grants recently, and it allows us now to have a social worker embedded on our staff, which is an, a staff position we could never afford, but is something we really, really need to address the other whole life issues of the people that we serve. And so that's a very important partnership. Hi, I'm Deb, and um, let's see, I'm in Seattle, and I manage these programs statewide. So basically, um, we have our, our program is in a unique setting, which has made it very possible for us to have some very unique collaborations. And one of the comments that I would make is that I think it's actually true. We, when uh, AFB sent out their one pager, um, my assistant went through all the little statistics on there because she was like, let's see how we stack up with how they think things are. And she said, we, you know, we stack up pretty well, but it doesn't quite tell the whole story because we do actually spend about the 548 or whatever it is um, per case, but that's of the IL dollars. And the real trick is to get some other kind of collaboration going. And, and I live in a state where... Um, we just aren't putting much money into um, public programs anymore. It, there's a, a lot of things. We have a big education. We lost a big education lawsuit, and we are supposed to put money into education now, and big time, and we don't have a state income tax. There's a lot of things in our state that make it really hard to make budget changes. And I, we'd gone back and forth for 100 years about funding to the legislature, and they always say, gosh, you do such great work. We're so glad you get it done, because we're not giving you anything. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, it's, they, don't take it personal. Yeah. Okay, I won't take it personal. I'm glad you're aging, and when you come to my program, I've written down your name, and we'll see <laughs> if you get your $548 worth or not. And I said to Kim, I said, make sure it's only 548 if they come. <laughs> All right. So here's the deal. Um, we, we needed to do a lot of collaborating. So we actually 
Um, I, we're, our uh, main administrative piece of us is housed at the University of Washington, so we're not housed in, um, in the regular state agency for the blind because they're rural and their expertise in the world happens to really be VR, and it's not managing IL contractors. So uh, we're doing that. So we manage all the subcontracts, and they range from being uh, large organizations to single folks. And they range in uh, experience and skills as well. Most of them have um, rehabilitation backgrounds, but a couple of them came from other backgrounds. So, um, and they're doing a good job throughout the state. We definitely have standards for that. Um, we provide the range of IL services that you might expect in home. Um, we aren't able to afford any kinds of retreats, but we would like to. That sounds good. And we have in the past when we've had some money. What I think we've done that's pretty unique is that we actually get some of our dollars that are not part of the regular program through the State Independent Living Council. And I could talk all day about uh, the importance and usefulness of developing a very good relationship with your State Independent Living Council and your Centers for Independent Living. And sometimes there's been a big breach between us as blind people and those centers. But um, They've got some dollars, and I'm going to have them. So we do in our state, and we are a good player on the silk. And um, I even managed the silk for about 18 months when they needed some um, executive assistance. So um, we, we are a valued player, and I would encourage you to work to develop that relationship. And if I can help any of you um, later in doing that, I, I really think it's important and useful and can be a source of some funding. Um, and there's a, something in it for them, too, which is that you've got better data than they have. So, um, frankly, that helps them, too. The other thing that we've been able to do is leverage a lot of the other programs. So we leverage the resources in the assistive technology program, um, which is coincidentally housed with us, so it was easy. Um, we leverage the resources with the deaf-blind equipment distribution program, which is housed with us and is easy. And then we, w we thought we better tackle some hard ones because we can't take over every program in the state. So we'd probably better go out and meet some new ones. So uh, we're now working with our... Um, with our um, Aging uh, triple AAA aging organizations in the state to um, to do some uh, cross pollination and some cross work and what we're looking at a lot is the services that they are already providing are they actually providing them to the, our customers and are they doing it in a way that works for them so that we don't have to duplicate that so we are really focusing in on doing what we do and trying to strip away some of the things that we do that people need that are available somewhere else if we could garner and um, catch those resources. We've taken this one pager that AFB did and we've actually tailored it to our state, which is what I would recommend to you, and we're starting our next campaign, we do one every year, uh, for uh, getting the legislature to do something uh, for us at the state level. But in the meantime, I think our um, collaborations with a lot of people who provide service, um, cross-training with them, working with them, um, really developing those relationships has made a much smoother path for the people we serve and has helped them after we're finished serving them because our services are not ongoing. 
try to convince our clients of that, but our, our services are not ongoing, and some of these others are. So it's been, a, I think, a good partnership. We need to do a lot more, but um, it's been a good partnership. But the thing I would toss into your bucket of take-homes is figure out, and, and let me help you if I can, to figure out how to have a better relationship with your State Independent Living Council, because they are now one of our funders, and that's the way it should be. Any, any additional? I, I, I had a question that just went out of my mind. Um, yeah, how, how do you do, how do you develop that relationship with the? Oh, first of all, uh, oh, I'm I'm channeling uh, Pat Beatty this week, um, which means that uh, IL is Independent Living, Silk is State Independent Living Council, Triple um, A is Agency on Aging. Area Agency on Aging. So there are some people who are not professionals in the room, so I thought I'd uh, bring you guys up to speed on, on the uh, acronyms uh, uh, as, as they come floating by. Um, <laughs> you're welcome. Um, how, uh, oh, I, that, here's, the, here's the question of the hour. How are people identified for the older blind program? Because obviously, you know, Mark said that we're only hitting 2% of the people who are eligible. How are they being identified, and where where are we falling short? This is Sherry. So a lot of our new senior clients come through word of mouth from cli former clients. Um, so word of mouth is definitely, and um, a lot of our former clients um, volunteer as mentors, so that also helps to spread the word. We um, we get a fair number of self referrals, uh, family members, caregivers. And we also get quite a few referrals from our optometric uh, community in the Sacramento region. So that's the bulk of ours. 55. That's another area of, you know, that we were, uh, that I, I wanted to suggest is um, because, the, because the age is 55 for the federal grants anyway, um, to work with the states uh, to make, you know, obviously uh, with the uh, Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act, we've lost the, uh, lost the homemaker closure. So we've lost uh, uh, the ability to work with anybody who doesn't have a, a, a competitive, integrated out, uh, uh, employment outcome. So if you're under 55, like I was, you know, I... I, I uh, I, I took disability retirement at 46 because I figured there was no way anybody was going to hire me, you know, at the same kind of salary that I was making, and I had two school-age kids. So what, you know, uh, what you may want to take a look at in your advocacy e efforts is can we get that age range down at the state level, you know, and, and oh, and yeah. Uh, this is Debbie. We, we serve all ages in our program. And um, so that's why I said it's really important to get to know the other possible collaborators because I uh, actually keep our funds separate because we have to. The federal law says that those dollars need to be spent on people over 55. So what, one of the things that is really interesting in our state, everyone is pretty excited about not being able to serve homemakers. We haven't served homemakers since 1995. So we don't even miss that. That doesn't matter to us. And the reason it doesn't matter is because back in 1995, um, 
I um, thought it was really important. I was working at Services for the Blind then, and I actually didn't think it was an honest thing for us to take homemaker closures in VR. Now, believe me, this is not about people getting service. This is about where, where you position it. If you have a situation where most of your employment outcomes are homemakers and are not competitive, at some point, that's going to catch up with us. Well, it did. So um, whether you liked it or not, and, and I'm not here to debate the philosophy, um, but whether you liked it or not, it caught up with us. So I thought this was going to happen. It took longer than I expected, So because um, I thought we were going to get it in the 80, 98 amendments. So we actually adopted a policy back in 1995, which basically said you, if you were going to work, you could um, be a home, you could be an em- employed, and we would give you all the um, uh, independent living types of services in that context, um, but but it would be for employment. And if you weren't going to be employed, then um, you know IL was going to need to figure it out. So we've always had this problem to figure it out, and so um, that's actually where we use our uh, state in, uh, independent living council dollars that we get is on our younger people, and that's where if we get any other additional money up to the point that if we ever could equal the two programs, we would not do this. But right now, any other funds we get go into the younger program. So how we handle it in our state now, which is consistent with WIOA, is that if we can get you to say the word work, you want to go to work, please go to work. You could be working. So uh, we would, for example, in Doug's example of being 46, um, we could ser- we could serve him in um, our independent living program. But we would try hard to uh, encourage VR very strongly and Doug to at least consider whether you could go back to work, to at least explore that. And while we're doing that, we're getting VR to give you all kinds of IL um, while we think of over. If you all finally decide, no, it really isn't going to work out. I'm really not going to get back to work. I really can't make what I need. It, or for whatever other reason, don't have the right skills, whatever it is. And then you come back to us. We'll, we'll be glad to finish it off. But we have a deal with VR to keep you in the VR side as long as it's honest. Um, and so we try very hard to start at people under the age of uh, 55 in VR if we can. But if we can't, then they come to, to our program. And we serve in our two programs together about 1,500 people statewide. Um, and um, it, it is largely on the older, on the over 55 side. But um, hey, they're serving, they served 86 customers in VR last year who were over age 55 because they were still thinking about working. So it isn't really about the age. It's are you going to go to work or are you not? And that's how we define it in our state. But it's really how we've defined it since 1995. So this is not new for us. Okay. Mark, I haven't heard you. I haven't heard you. So, of course, uh, Mark here. So I um, focus on stuff at the national level, naturally. Uh, and so let me offer some, some thoughts about all of this. So it has always been, you know, I, I, I get the policy debate around the homemaker closure issue all, all too well. And, and not only professionally, but personally agree with <coughs> our majority view in this field that what the Department of Education did uh, in 2016 to eliminate the ability to use vocational rehab dollars for homemaker closure, uh, you know, is a, it's, an un, uh, it's an inappropriate exercise of federal uh, restriction, you know, uh, of federal authority to restrict states' ability to serve 
their clients in a flexible way. And we ought to be pushing back on that. And I know that we are uh, pushing back on that in a lot of ways. Our colleagues at National Industries for the Blind, some of the private agency folks are really sort of, you know, among the leaders in that. And we're all sort of helping them. That having been said, I, mean, I do think, and I think, Deb, your comments about, hey, we've been doing it th you know, this way in our state for years, so chill. Uh, you didn't use that word, but that's a, that's, that sounds like a, 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 a Seattle <laughs> word. It's, yeah, it's cold enough without calling. Okay, relax. How about that? Uh, it, uh, um, and, and I think is, is on point. And let me give you a, you know, putting it in practical terms. So the, the outgoing Obama administration, I think, recognized uh, the fact that, uh, you know, uh, whether dollars should have been used for this purpose or not, the reality uh, of it was that the state voc rehab systems were, in fact, providing independent living, straight-up independent living services without that employment sort of goal. And, and, so, and so they said, you know what? Yep, we're going to go ahead and take homemaker closures off the table, but because we recognize that people were kind of doing that and using the dollars in that way, we are going to propose that the older blind program's funding be increased in order to sort of cover that change. And what did they, and, and it makes perfect sense that they would suggest doing that, and what did they suggest as a number to cover it? Two million dollars. <laughs> so, so I, and, and you know, look, this is not a criticism or anything or support of or whatever uh, of, of, of the Obama administration or the current one, but I will tell you, I mean, either, either the fact that $2 million additional money in the older blind program to account for this homemaker closure change is accurate and therefore, you know, across, I'm sorry, in my mind, maybe it is to some other people, but in my mind, I mean, I'd like to have $2 million in my bank, I, believe me, but $2 million across the country for a major national program is nothing. And, if, and, and the notion that we would give ourselves angina about a, uh, you know, a, a homemaker closure rule change that really only amounts to $2 million, I mean, is crazy. So either that, that money is, that, that total is accurate, or it isn't. Yeah. And, and, and if it isn't, and we really, you know, need to have a more honest conversation about exactly what the real impact of a homemaker closure, then we need to start tangibly talking about that uh, in a much more effective way. So that's one point. The other point I want to put on the table for all of you, and, and this has to do with our advocacy efforts, right? The real question we have to kind of pose to ourselves and the, the point that we need to make for Congress, and if you had this mythical one-pager, what you wouldn't see on that one-pager in front of you is this answer, which is, okay, so what is full funding for the Older Blind Program? Nobody knows. Nobody knows what full funding at the federal level through this Independent Living Services for Older Individuals Who Are Blind program, what that would look like. And that includes, by the way, our colleagues at National Council of State Agencies for the Blind. It's not as though, you know, we're in disagreement about what the full scope of full funding, but nobody knows. And that's not anybody's fault. I mean, that, that uh, number one, is uh, a testament to the fact that we do need additional data and research. And I don't know if my colleague and boss, uh, Kirk Adams, is in the room. 
there he is. Uh, but hopefully this will make him smile that, you know, part of what it is that I know that we are doing as part of our new strategic plan that Kirk will be talking about more tomorrow is a reinvestment, re, uh, what, renewal of our efforts and focusing of our efforts on research. So hopefully AFB can help play a role in gathering and fostering that data. But the other piece that we need to do is to really get a clear sense of exactly who and what it is that we're uh, serving and what we're going to do with that money. If you look at the older blind program, the way it's laid out in federal law, it would look like these programs are going to help people with surgeries to help correct uh, problems with their vision. And there are people, and there are programs that I, I hear, not very many, that do it. So other people, others, and I'm not going to mention their names because we don't do that sort of thing. Uh, but you know, there are certain state agencies for the blind directors who have said, you know what. Uh, in my state, I try to discourage use of older blind dollars on technology. You know why? Because technology just sucks up money. And what I really want to do in our state is focus on services. Other people would say, what in the world are you talking about? Technology is the ultimate liberator. I want to." So we need to think much more clearly about who the people are that we're serving, what specific set of services that those folks need, and what are optimal uh, packages, if you will, of service, and of course then put dollar amounts to that. I don't want to suggest that none of that work is happening. Our colleagues at Mississippi State, for example, are doing that. Colleagues here on this t table, I think, I'm hearing a lot of nodding up here. So I mean, and, and of course certainly AFB, others, we're, we're, we're starting to piece it together, but it is part of the advocacy effort to really start to answer those questions. And so here's the punchline. What if we decided tomorrow that there were, that the full funding for the older blind program would amount to $120 million. Let, let's just say that. Just, just to have a little fun on a Sunday afternoon, right? It's $33.4 million now. Let's say we wave a magic wand, everyone in Congress eats a mushroom, and they, and they, and they give it $120 million and Mr. Trump signs it. Okay, that's a lot more money in the mix. And under the current funding formula, the current structure, of, at least at the federal level, Right, the states that are the small states of which what there's 11, 15 of them. Anyway, uh, it, you know it's a good chunk of our states out there that are getting the so-called minimum amount of money. Right, because by population they'd be too small if you just did it by counting heads. So we set aside X amount of dollars for them regardless of population. Right now that threshold is what a two hundred twenty-five thousand dollars. If we were to raise the amount of money, if you and I, our tax dollars, went up from $33.4 million to $120 million tomorrow, you know how much those minimum allotment states would get additional? Maybe about another eighty dollars or $90,000 each. How much is that going to really provide? So that is also part of our challenge, and we are engaging our friends at the National Council of State Agencies for the Blind about this, which is... You know, there are enormous states like California. Don't hit me, please. Uh, you know, which is what? One, it's one-sixth of, what is it? What is one-sixth of America's economy? It's the sixth largest economy in the world, whatever that soundbite is. An enormous state. Most of our, a good chunk of our states absolutely are going to get the shaft. If, even if we raise our older blind monies to a you know, substantial amount, which means we need to have the tough conversation about how we fundamentally restructure this older blind program to make sure, not that we try to put the screws to the you know, bigger states, but that we divide up these monies so that those smaller states are getting meaningful increases. Thanks. So here's another question. I mean, uh, you're, 
you're dancing around it a little bit. We're, um, one of the reasons I understand that, the, that this uh, program was put in place in the first place was to keep people out of institutions, thinking that if you spend money to rehabilitate people who are losing their vision, then they're going to be able to stay at home. And, you know, and now there's a resurgence of interest because there's a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, uh, talk about uh, aging in place. Um, what does it constitute, what constitutes the basics that people need to have in order to live in the 21st century in their own home? Let me just, I, I was talking a lot, I'll, this will be much shorter, but I want to set this up for what you're about to hear because this is very important. One of the theories that we tried to sort of explore at AFP was, okay, maybe, you've heard of this the Supreme Court case called the Olmstead case? So all about trying to make sure, get folks out of institutions, provide them services in the community, et cetera, et cetera. So you're going you're gonna to love this and you're going to hate it when I tell you. So we had this wonderful conversation with some of the leading disability rights lawyers in the country to say, okay, let, let's kind of conspire here. Let's pick a state, California, and find out how we might, you know, uh, talk about, because what you really want to do, right, and the people who've used this Olmstead case to deinstitutionalize, it's, a, it's all about, you know, ultimately sh doing that, not just to help the one person who you're the subject of the, of the case, but to shift policy, you know, policy and dollars at the state level from investing in institutions to investing in community services. And you know what the, the disability rights lawyers told us? They said, you know what your biggest problem is? Your folks aren't, reserving a, aren't receiving appropriate services even in the institutions to which they're sent. Right. So in the case of Olmstead, even if we could try to make the argument, okay, look, People are being warehoused. They're being sent to nursing homes. We've got to get them out. And the, 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 the only thing that Olmstead buys you is shifting where services are being provided. It doesn't require states to provide certain things to them, which is why what you're about to hear <laughs> about what folks need is so critical and why advocacy at the state level to say that it's not just federal dollars, all the things we talk about, We'll be working on that at the federal level. The state level, you need to be working at the state level to say, this is what institutions, we don't want people in institutions. If they're going to be in institutions, this is what in folks in institutions, whether they're in an institution or at their home or lost, need in order to be independent. I'm the one from California. <clears throat> no, <I'm> kidding. <laughs> um, gosh, that's a big question. What do people need? Um, Technology, I couldn't agree with you more, and we're seeing that. And, um, you know, we have a lot of our uh, folks who are funded through our OIB program who are probably 75 to 100 years old right now. But the younger group of seniors coming in are tech savvy, and the technology that, you know, we're hearing about throughout this conference this week um, is amazing and really does improve the c capabilities um, to age in place. I come out of, um, part of my background is affordable housing, and you know, there is an issue where are people overhoused or they're put in nursing homes prematurely. Um, one of the things that I'm working with, I've done some presentations with, is uh, leading age, and it's about working with architects and others about how can we develop new retirement communities or renovate existing ones so that assistive materials, devices, environments are already built into place so that as folks are losing their vision or they're moving in with vision loss, their whole 
place is a lot easier to navigate. So it's not just the bare minimum requirements, but it's more than that. And I think that's where the, the statewide partnerships and coalitions become really important, that we can work with all of these other larger statewide groups to partner and say, how can we be doing a better job and do more and better services for the people that are coming to us for services? Yeah, I, th I was going to uh, add a little bit to that. I think I think there's a, a couple of things. We It's easy to think about a lot of things that people need. They fall into three or four large areas that fortunately for us we get to track because of our relationship with the State Independent Living Council who is concerned about those things and, and at a national level. So we're tracking people's access to transportation and whether or not the services we are providing um, get them any closer to that. So whether it's an O&M service or a techie thing or whatever it is, are they, are we, have we moved them closer to their transportation resolution? The second one is um, about access to health care, and we define that across the whole medical device thing. You know, I, I work at the university, and my program is, is housed in kind of a funny place. Um, we have administration from uh, the CHDD, which is uh, Center on Human Development and Disability, which deals with children and some of that. And then we have Rehab Med in our group. And I tell you, if you come to us and you have a, a need that relates to your physical being and you need uh, training about adapting to um, you know, a, an orthopedic disability or whatever, we have ways to cover that. And we can use your insurance to cover that. And when we run out of you know, those and we're getting ready to take care of your vision needs, you have me. And that's not insurance. And so, you know, those are real challenges. But, but transportation, um, access to health care, and then sort of access to the general independent living things that a person needs to live uh, the life they want to live. Um, it's been a real challenge to me to think about this whole thing of institutionalization because people are um, institutionalized for a variety of reasons. Vision loss certainly can contribute to it. And if I ever find a person who's um, you know, institutionalized because of or, or put into a more restricted living environment of any kind solely because of their vision, we can fix that if the person wants to and we can get on board with them. But usually, I mean, as people are aging, and the comment was made early in this presentation, they're living longer, they get more time to develop disabilities, and they get to develop them bigger. And, and I know that as I'm aging, you know, that I have problems I didn't have 20 years ago. And, I, you know, and, and some of them, they tell me, are because I'm getting older, good grief. And so, you know, we're all faced with this. So um, I'm not as worried about bringing people out of institutions, which is kind of one of our mandates in the state independent living council realm and at the federal level as much as I am trying to figure out how do we keep them out. So one of the things that we do a lot is to really look at the dynamic of how likely is it that if we do not provide the services we do, all $548 worth of it, how likely are we to, you know, that this person without our service will go into a more restricted um, and maybe most restricted environment. And we really look at that very hard because I think that is one of the ways to begin telling our story um, to people about what we do. Because 
Um, one of the things that hurt my feelings really badly a few years ago was we had done such a wonderful campaign to try to get our governor on board and to get our governor to include more money for us in, in his budget, and we thought we had done it, and we hadn't because um, one of the um, governor's aides was uh, having a beer with uh, one of the Services for the Blind guys on Friday night and said, yeah, I really like that little program you guys have where they, where they give out the cool little low-vision glasses and stuff to people, and they give them a little you know, self-help counseling. That's really cool. And we, That's not what we're doing. You know, We are actually working with people to stay in the community. And until we really learn that message and until we're able to describe what we do for people as that, rather than, well, we teach a little Braille, we get a little vision, we give a little trouble, we, you know, I got $5 worth of AIDS. I don't care. I mean, the real issue is, have we kept you from something else and have we therefore potentially saved the system resources and have we significantly improved the quality of your living? And so what we need are the tools to keep you, any person, out of a more restricted environment because more restricted environments tend to cost society more money. So um, we, we, that's really where we want to go. And we have to start thinking about and framing what we do in that rather than thinking about it as the typical rehab service concept that we've always done. Exactly. Is Larry Johnson in the room? Yeah. Great. Uh, just to follow up, Deb, to your comment. So again, at the federal level, you say, well, okay, we need to stay on message. Um, if we can just let folks know, and maybe we ought to get all of the papers such as we have in the research to say, okay, uh, if we provide these services, look, we're going to be able to prevent falls, the onset of secondary conditions. There, there is a fair amount of that research there. It, it's not in as bright of neon uh, as perhaps some of us. But it's always dangerous for a blind person to make visual-related illusions like that. Uh, it's not as sharp a braille uh, as we would like. Uh, for that reason, but I mean, you know, some of it's there. So why doesn't it work? Well, because the United States Congress follows this little thing called the Congressional Budget Office. We might have heard about them in the news, perhaps. Uh, and uh, regardless of what we say about them, uh, both Democrats and Republicans, when they are not being angry about something, which is hardly never these days, would at least be candid to say, you know what, they actually do uh, process things uh, fairly well in terms of at least looking at things in an honest fashion. So if we say, okay, we've got all this evidence to, su to suggest, look, if you provide these services, you can prevent people from going into nursing homes and stuff. Some of that evidence is there, but from a how do you close the sale, right? How do you actually get your hands on additional federal dollars? They don't look at that information because folks who are handling the federal budget say, well, but what you're really suggesting is that you may be able to prevent falls. You may be able to do them, but we cannot craft a federal budget on what might be, we only know that what you're asking for is a ton more additional money here, which may or may not work. And by the way, no matter how you feel about this administration or the previous one and too many rules, not enough regs, whatever, this is why the debate over effectiveness of federal programs is so critical and why people get really worked up about it. Because that's really what that's all about, is trying to show the effectiveness of this program in a context where people say, come on, what your evidence really suggests is that you might be able to do some good things for those people, but is there really hard? For every dollar we know we're going to get two back in this Medicare or Medicaid program, come on. So let me have the mic because I want to go to 
I want to now go to Larry. And uh, Larry, there, unfortunately, there are only three chairs up here at the table. So um, if you could just uh, speak from where you are. You want to stand on this table. There you go. He's, he's tall to begin with. So, um, We've gotten to the point where we want to uh, move the conversation to what, uh, your, what the Texas legislation asks for and how you got there. So if you could take about five minutes on each. Sure. Well, first of all, the first step was to find out how serious was the problem. And uh, I was shocked to discover in Texas, and I think this probably is pretty representative around the country, uh, <clears throat> we have about 440,000 legally blind seniors. And uh, with the uh, baby boom population, the estimate is 60% increase over the next 15 years, which is another quarter of a million. The current program to serve uh, older blind persons in Texas <clears throat> is able to serve about 2,700 a year. You add in the efforts by nonprofits like Loud Houses for the Blind, and maybe that would go up to 5,000. So that's a significant problem, and nobody was talking about it. I call them the forgotten ones. This is the largest group of visually impaired citizens in our country. And it's increasing at an incredible rate. And there's no plan to how to address it. So the first thing to do was to get some organizations aware of it and behind it. So we were able to get resolutions passed by the American Council of the Blind of Texas by a coalition of Texans with disabilities, and by a, <clears throat> an organization that I joined four years ago called the Texas Silver-Haired Legislature, which is an organization of seniors working to advocate on behalf of seniors. And this is where I'm going to lead. Blind organizations can't do it alone. Blind organizations cannot do it alone. And resources to get funding for blind, blindness agencies are not going to be available. Our Texas legislature made it very clear that there would be no additional funding. So the next step was then, all right, we need to expand out. We need to involve mainstream organizations that serve seniors. And so that was our approach. Uh, we had to get some interest from uh, key legislators. There was, uh, fortunately, there was a um, joint House-Senate Committee on Aging Issues, which uh, I uh, testified before and was fortunate that we got some positive response. Uh, also worked with another senator from San Antonio with whom we've had good relationships. And uh, the result was we got two bills introduced by two different senators, figuring, well, one will back up the other one. <laughs> and then was the hard work to go around and try to arm twist uh, the various legislators into supporting the bill. Now, understand, the bill did not ask for any money. 
That was the key. What we wanted was a dialogue. We wanted a spotlight on this crucial issue. This population is out there. And please remember, these are the seniors that helped build this state. They deserve some consideration. That resonated. We talked about seniors, which someday everybody will be. If you're lucky enough. So do it for selfish reasons. Do it for yourself. Do it for your grandmother. Do it for your mother. We talked about what the, you know, what the average number of uh, persons who are visually impaired, uh, how that increases. After 65, it's one in a, about nine. After 85, it's one in four, and so forth. So we were able to get some interest, and eventually uh, we did get enough support to pass the bill. Now, this is only step one, let me tell you. This is only step one. There's a long way to go. Uh, what they've, we've got is uh, we were lucky enough to find a, a committee that would, an advisory committee to the Health and Human Services Committee that would, uh, uh, that would embrace this charge. And they received the recommendations through the uh, legislation of what they need to do. They need to find out about the problem. How, how large is it? Where do these people live? How many of them are nursing homes and how many of them aren't? We need to find out what kind of services are available. Are they taking advantage of these services? We need to find out about uh, what kind of collaboration and coordination currently exists among, first, the blindness organizations. And then secondly, let's reach out to other mainstream organizations. Well, what kind of mainstream organizations? Well, what about insurance carriers? Insurance carriers have a stake in it because if they can keep people in their homes instead of in nursing homes, that saves them a lot of money. What about physicians and nursing associations? What about area agencies on aging? What about local and regional transportation companies? What about uh, city, state, uh, senior centers? There are numerous national and state organizations that represent and serve the senior population. We need to embrace those and invite them to be part of the solution because if they can be part of the solution, it takes some of the pressure off of the, quote, blindness organizations and agencies to do it all. So keep in mind that, and somebody referred to this, it costs about $47,000 a year for a person to be in a nursing home. Uh, the blindness agency told me that to keep a person in their own home, give them the O&M training and a few adaptive aids and so on, probably is about $2,500. So economically, it pays to keep people in their own home. What happens if they don't stay in their own home? They either become a ward of one of their family members or they wind up in a nursing home, neither of which is, is desirable. Let me end with one final issue, and that is what can be the role of organizations like ACB? I'm not talking about getting money. What can be your role in helping people who lose their vision to not commit suicide, 
to not feel totally abandoned, to not feel in a crisis situation. So I challenge ACB and all of its affiliates, you need to find a way to be available and to know about the seniors who are joining this population and intervene at a very early stage to give them the support that they need, the direction they need, the information they need so they will be able to adjust psychologically and emotionally to this traumatic, traumatic situation. As I told uh, the legislators, I said, you know, I'm one of the lucky ones because I'm already blind and I'm already a senior, but there are hundreds of thousands in this country who are joining this situation without that knowledge, information, or support. Blind guys handing off a microphone. It's fun. It's like watching two blind folks toast each other with red wine on a white carpet. It's a lot of fun. It's good stuff. Um, so uh, just a quick uh, thing about the agenda on aging. There are four goals. We've been talking a lot today about goal one, which is all about funding for services. Goal two uh, has to do with the quantity and quality of service providers. Uh, how many human beings do we really have to provide these services anyhow? Uh, we are not relitigating per se the whole, you know, blindness professionals versus OTs debate. We're not relitigating it, but we are sort of looking at it is, it is what it is. That horse may very well have left the barn. What do we do now? What do we have? What is, and how do we work in that environment? The third area has to do with uh, exactly all of the stuff that Larry was talking about, coordination and collaboration of service, available services to maximize resources. Really appreciate the fact that Larry uh, has seasoned the, uh, that group with his uh, knowledge and wisdom and wit, uh, which you can see is in abundance. Uh, and then uh, goal four uh, is about low vision devices and our very own Tony Stevens uh, from ACB uh, is chairing that. I only say that to say you know, we are trying to look at we, the field, is trying to look at this in a comprehensive way, and this notion that we shouldn't just be talking about, you know, stuff at the federal level, but really do need to coordinate services cannot be uh, overstated. No easy answers to this one either, huh? Um, we are, uh, the, the rehab task force has uh, uh, updated their resolution that uh, that was passed about three years ago uh, on this older blind older independent blind program issue yep. uh, and we're pushing for more uh, 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 you know legislative imperatives at the at the uh, federal level yep. so that we when we come back uh, when we go to DC in February uh, that's one of the items that we may be talking about yep. um, and uh, uh, and, and you were talking about, and there's another one that we're that we're sponsoring that is talking about licensure and, and sort of keeping, uh, is starting the conversation about who is who is working with uh, blind and low vision people, 
And are, are, number one, are they qualified? Number two, uh, there's another issue I know that keeps coming up in our phone calls in New York. Uh, the practitioners can't get into the nursing homes to give people braille or instruction or any kind of instruction um, to even try to get them out of the nursing home because they don't have the proper credentials by state law to get into the nursing home to begin with. You know, so so we got some issues about licensure and certification and, and who's, do, you know, who's doing it and what do they need to do. And we all, as you know, we all know people who have come out of that system and said, oh, I had this person and they didn't do, you know, da-da-da, you know? <laughs> that was diddly squat. Thank you. That's what that was. Yes. Yeah, Mitch. Can, can, I, can I have you ask the question and I repeat it? Or, Not the normal mic. <clears throat> well, we do have a mic, actually. I'll, we do. I'll, uh, I'll stand up as well. Um, Mark, Whoops. I'm sorry? I'm, I'm bringing oh, your, right. your mic. Yeah. Okay. Mark sort of addressed the issue, although he came to the doorstep but didn't open the door uh, to where I'm going. I chair the Department of Rehabilitation Blind Advisory Committee in California. And one of the issues that I am raising has to do with the quality of service. Um, we have, in certain parts of the state, my part of the state being one example, a dearth of blindness agencies. Uh, a number of the agencies that provide services to older blind um, are independent living centers. And I will only say that perhaps this is unique to my state, but 15 years ago, National Council on Independent Living came out with a white paper opposing categorical services. So I have a certain fear and trepidation over independent living centers providing services to blind people. Um, there are some exceptions in my state uh, where independent living centers are hiring blind people and are hiring people who do know how to provide categorical services, but that ain't the case throughout California and all of our centers. So, Mark, in the, in the conversation about um, what services our folks need, we also need to expand that to discuss and what is the quality of service. And I think you can have that conversation without opening up that can of worms about OTs versus licensed, uh, licensed counselors or licensed um, VR specialists. But it does need to happen because uh, an awful lot of blind people who are getting services from um, agencies are not necessarily getting good service, and I think we need to deal with that. Thanks. Mark, where are you? Thank you. Uh, sure. Yep, absolutely. And so uh, just a plug for the American Council of the Blind. A year or two ago, we had a resolution exactly on this point, dealing with the whole question of making sure that, you know, uh, 
state agencies are, are actively uh, vetting, frankly, the qualifications of this, the various folks with whom they contract to provide these services. It's not so much that it, it gets tricky around the occupational therapy question as much as it gets into, okay, if we're going to start making claims about the fact that independent living centers don't do right by our people, we need to be able to document that in a pretty hardcore, tangible fashion. We've got a ton of anecdotal evidence on that score. Uh, I'm not entirely sure how successful our field would be at really pushing that uh, in a hardcore way. Perhaps that's one of the things that, oh, gee, maybe a think tank uh, focusing on research uh, in our field perhaps ought to, ought to take that up. And uh, let's also not forget that the business of credentialing those uh, private agencies, whether they be independent living centers or our private blindness agencies, that doesn't uh, come with its own, without its own baggage and controversy, a la NAC, a la CARF, a la any number of other acronyms that we could drop on people on a uh, Sunday afternoon for fun. Just a second, I was going to make one comment on this um, because I think there's an important concept here. Um, we, we're very fortunate in our state. We, we don't have an issue of, of being forced to use any particular kind of subcontractor, whether it's IL centers or not. And there's no law that requires that. So a state needs to, you know, um, it's the SRC, the state rehab council in your state or whatever, needs to get its act together and, you know, make some insistence. But what I would do, rather than talk about, well, I don't want... Uh, IL centers, you know, serving blind guys or whatever it is, because I don't think it's about that. I think really it's about having the right person provide the right service. And it ought to be a matrix, because quite frankly, IL centers have the potential to provide some very valuable services that most of our independent living providers don't provide. And, and it's not that they wouldn't like to, it's just we don't fund them to because we don't have enough money, and they may not have had those skills. So... Um, you know, so basically there are some valuable things to gather there. There are some valuable things that OTs generically do for people that they do for people with low vision and blindness or that they could do with some training. So I, I wouldn't rule out any categorical um, groups, and I wouldn't rule out any, um, any, any particular types of people or places or whatever as being good collaborators with you. What I would say is that you need to be very, very clear about what your service delivery is and what it takes to do that part of it. Then you also need to be very clear about the parts of it that you aren't able to deliver and who could be delivering those. So um, as I look at hiring new contractors, I, I think about the, the things that require O&M or rehab teaching backgrounds to do that are very vision specific. Um, you know, I want my low vision evals to happen with people who are qualified to give a low vision eval, et cetera. But when I think about some of the other things we do for people, they're not that way. And so I don't assume that everything that happens in the IL program has to happen from, quote, uh, an IL blind 
level professional, I think there are a number of those other things. And as you build those collaborations, that's kind of what Larry's talking about, and I love it, is that as you build those collaborations, then you are able to more focus on those things that you really should be doing that no one else can do, and you're helping other people do the pieces that they can do. And that's how you get your service delivered a little more effectively for the same $548, is you're using someone else's dollars, and when you're paying out your dollars, you're paying them for the right thing. So if I pay an IL center to do something, I'm paying them for something IL centers can and should do. And I think that is um, a very, very critical piece of it. Yes, thank you. We did have a question. There's somebody cited who could run the mics for me. Thank you, David. Because if I do it, somebody's going to get run over. <laughs> That's right. Okay, we're talking about. We don't have enough money. Who are you? I'm Carolyn Burley from Canton, Ohio. And I'm, I'm a retired rehabilitation teacher. But what we're, t we're talking about, we don't have enough money to, to provide. There's just not enough money, and there's all these people out here. And I wanted to, you know, we should reach out for things like letting people know that certain drugstores have audible labels for their thing. For their thing. Do everybody know that you can get a free uh, identifier for your currency? And a lot of people could afford uh, their magnifying glasses, but do they know where to get them? Uh, and some of these things that uh, the accessibility to your ATM machine is available. Uh, there's a lot of television, there's certain, there's some television shows that are accessible. And, and now some of the, uh, like I guess Comcast, you can, uh, uh, has it so that it's got audible for selecting channel. And let people know about these things, maybe uh, on the radio or somewhere, because letting them know that they can access these things without any special services, I think will help because we just don't have enough money because of, to serve all the people that need it. And some people just need a little bit of help, like telling their, their uh, reading the bottles on their prescriptions, because it's tiny, but yet they still can see to do things in the house, but they can't do these fine things. So, so there we should be... Uh, yeah, yeah, there should be ways to outreach these people. Absolutely, and I think that's a, that's a great um, opportunity for local ACB chapters and, and you know and state affiliates is to identify folks you know who are good at doing that you know the right people for the right job again um, there are some people who could go into a, an independent living center and, and provide some of the services you know uh, and uh, you know and, and, and it's a great recruiting uh, tool guys you know so you know everybody's focused on uh, recruiting young members but you know older members, 
uh, they have the time to do stuff. <laughs> so if we can get more, if we can get more people to, uh, at, at, you know, in an older age, you know, who are retired or whatever, and, and get them involved with our, our, our chapters and our affiliates, maybe we can get some more work done. Well, yeah, you don't have to go through an independent living center. It's just it's just a, an opportunity for us to to reach out and to and to uh, and to leverage our expertise as blind people, is what as Larry was saying earlier. Yeah, right on four o'clock. Thank you so much. Um, we have a, a we have a list serve uh, an ECB list serve called Rehab Stakeholders, and if you're not on that and want to uh, continue to uh, get information about what we're up to and, and uh, ongoing information about uh, you know, the Older Blind Program and, and, and some such stuff, um, please go on to acb.org, and there's a, a mailing lists uh, thing on the menu, and you go to that, and it's Rehab Stakeholders. Thank you very, very much, Mark. Thank you, Sherry. Thank you, Deb. Thank you, Larry. And thank you, David. It's a uh, good session, and I appreciate you guys coming and, and, uh, and being with us.